Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher with over 15 years of experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is to help yoga teachers transform their teaching by mastering the fundamentals of anatomy. By learning anatomy in my easy step-by-step way, you'll be able to confidently share it in your cues, easily create sequences, and you'll eagerly answer student questions. And all along the way, you'll increase your impact and earning potential. On the podcast here, you will hear anatomy lessons, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. Once you listen to today's episode, go ahead and visit barebonesyoga.com, my website, for free resource guides for teachers. Download any and all that are there, including one of my most popular tools, my sequence building template. And if you'd like, send me a one-line email with the answer to this question. What's your biggest frustration right now as a yoga teacher? And I'm happy to do some brainstorming with you in a free coaching session. My email address is karen at barebonesyoga.com. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. Let's get to today's episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 204. So I am recording this on Tuesday, September 6, 2022. This will go live on September 12th. And I'm really excited because it's been a couple of episodes since I have had a guest on. And today I have a guest on, and I'm going to tell you about my guest in a moment. I just want to first let you know that the week that you're listening to this, if you listen to it shortly after it comes out on the 14th and 15th of September, I am offering a workshop specifically for new yoga teachers on cueing and sequencing, how to confidently share your cues and how to easily create sequences that your students will love. I know that new teachers are spending so much time writing out their sequences. I want to save you that time and give you a really powerful approach that you can employ like on the fly or maybe with like 10 to 15 minutes of prep before your class. So to sign up for, I'm offering the same workshop twice, six o'clock on the 14th and two o'clock on the 15th, all times Eastern. And to register, I'll include the link in the show notes. The link is on my website events page. I'll be posting about it every day on my Instagram in my stories. And you can also just send me an email or a direct message uh, if you can't find the link in any of those other ways. So I hope to see you at that workshop. For today's episode, I have a special guest, Libby Hinsley. And Libby is a doctor of physical therapy and a certified yoga therapist with many years of experience in both capacities. And Libby was referred to me by a good friend and colleague, Trina Altman, who has been on the podcast. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to that one. And many thanks to Trina for connecting us 
because Libby is someone who specializes both in her practice as a physical therapist and her yoga teaching practice in working with people with hypermobility. And this is a topic that I've never covered on the show before, I've wanted to cover, and I'm so excited for you all to hear about this. I feel like there are a lot of, there is a lot of um, just different thoughts and opinions about what is hypermobility, what you should or shouldn't do if you have a student who has hypermobility. So we're going to get into all of that. And I wanna just let you know that Libby just released a book, Yoga for Bendy People, and it's specifically written for yoga teachers. So I want you to go get that book. I'm gonna get it myself. It is going to be a wonderful resource that you can access even beyond this in-depth conversation that we have here. So with that, we're gonna to go to my interview, my conversation with Libby Hensley. Here we go. Hi there. Hi there. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. It looks great. Did you get your computer to work? I did. Um, it was magic. It came back on. I'm still going to take it in today for repairs, but um, whew, I feel so much better because I also backed up everything last night to an external hard drive once it came back on. So I am like so relieved. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Okay. Well, worst case, you get a new computer out of the whole thing. I only got this a year ago, so I'm hoping it's um, an easy fix. Fixable. We'll yeah. Well, anyway, it's so meet. nice to meet you. And thanks for joining me here on the podcast. I am really looking forward to this conversation. And I want to give a shout out. I'm sure she's going to listen to Trina Altman yeah. for connecting us. She is kind of like, podcast glue for me because she's connected me to a number of different people, which I am super grateful for. So Trina, when you're listening, uh, namaste, very grateful to you for connecting me to lots of folks, including yourself. And I'm just really, I, I did a little research last night and there's just so many topics that we can go into. And I'm looking forward to kind of just touching base on a, a number of different things and then giving you a chance to talk about your book. Okay, great. So having said that, why don't we start out, tell us where you're based out of and a little bit about you and the work you do. Okay. Well, I live in Asheville, North Carolina, and I've lived here for about 20 years. Um, I'm a physical therapist, but I was a yoga teacher first. So I taught yoga for five or six years. And in that process, got really interested in learning more about the body and everyone's injuries that everyone always has. And so I went to PT school and have been practicing now for um, about 11, 12 years as a PT. And um, so I love that combination. And I teach anatomy to yoga teachers. That's a, a large part of what I do. And I've gotten really interested in hypermobility over the past few years, even more than I was because of my own health sort of adventures in hypermobility. Got it. Now, let me just ask you, because, you know, I kind of had a reverse path in that I started out studying to be a physical therapist here in Boston at Boston University. And after two and a half years, I thought, you know what, I kind of want to work with the whole person, not just like focusing on movement, the functional movement part. So I ended up getting my undergrad in rehab counseling. Hmm. You ended up switching, it sounded like teaching yoga motivated you to pursue physical therapy. And 
that's a big leap. I mean, it's one thing to be teaching yoga. I mean, I know from being in school to be a physical therapist, it's a pretty significant hill to climb. Mm -hmm. So how, I mean, were you working in another type of job when you were teaching yoga? Tell us, I'm just curious about that. Yeah, it's been a weird um, winding path. But so I have a master's degree in environmental studies and for a long time worked in a variety of, you know, ways in that field, specifically in sustainable agriculture and working with farmers. And and so I was working with nonprofits on that stuff. And then on the side, I thought, you know, I'm getting so into yoga. I just moved to this new town. This was 20 years ago. And I thought, well, why don't I just do a uh, teacher training and get you know, learn more about yoga. So I did that on the side. And then I started, you know, picking up a class here, a class there. And I just got more and more interested in that. And um, I also already knew that from my own body, having a job that had me moving around during the day is way better than sitting at a desk, writing grants or different things. You know, I, I was working with farmers and uh, food systems, but it was at a desk job, you know what I mean? So So I just was really drawn to do more of that. So I started teaching yoga full time. And then, of course, I couldn't make a living and I needed kind of a a next step that was practical, honestly, and employable and um, aligned with my interests. So I thought, hey, why don't I just go to PT school? And it is a huge hill to climb. I took two years, two years of prerequisites in order to even apply to PT school. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So um, before we get into the yoga piece, tell me about your work as a physical therapist and where that's happening and the kinds of patients you see. Yeah. So I worked in an outpatient orthopedic clinic for six or seven years. That's um, kind of pretty much where I have worked in my PT career is outpatient orthopedics. I had a really short stint in inpatient acute care which lasted like three months and <laughs> that didn't work out well for me, but um, I'm in, I'm into outpatient. And now I have my own practice. That's very part-time and I, you know, treat patients primarily with hypermobility syndromes and also injured slash painful yoga practitioners or yoga teachers. And also the occasional just random low back pain, knee pain, shoulder pain, orthopedic complaint. And usually, yeah, usually they're people who have kind of tried more traditional PT, maybe not had great results because I work in a very, it's just me in my office. I don't deal with insurance. I don't do billing. I don't have to justify treatments. I just see people, they pay me. I see them way less frequently. They're usually a patient population who is very motivated. They're doing a lot of self-care and they just more need some guidance on that. And that's, mm-hmm. that works well for me too. Yeah, it's interesting. I'll just take a little sidebar here because I had a conversation the other night with a friend of mine who has a myriad of issues. He's a, a very avid golfer in his mid fifties and he's got a number of different functional movement challenges. He's had um, an Achilles issue that led him actually to recently get the plasma transplant or the plasma injections. It was so severe. And he also has just other issues with the, with movement. And he was telling me he's been going to, we have here in Boston, and I don't want to say the name, but there's a number of franchised 
assisted movement places. I don't even want to call them clinics because there's no physician that's involved. And he was telling me about where he had gone. And I had actually talked to them over the past couple of months and went in and met with them. And I have a personal training background as well as a yoga teaching background. So they were specifically looking for people with a CPT. And if you had yoga, that was fine, but they were really, cause they were doing PNF stretching. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I noticed was that the rate of reimbursement was just $25 for the practitioner. And I was saying to them, I'm like, this is actually, you're doing more with the person than you are in teaching yoga and the pay rates actually lower. And I was talking to him the other night about just the process of working with someone in that capacity. And I sort of wish that because he is highly motivated, there were more people like yourself who, because he was lamenting about not having a prescription from his physician mm -hmm. to get physical therapy, or he had it and did it and it didn't really help type of thing. So I really can imagine that the people that see you are you know, cause he's sort of searching for something like you provide where if you're highly motivated and you don't necessarily want to go to who knows what kind of franchise that has a sign outside that says we stretch people <laughs> and you don't really know the quality. I mean, you've got the PT background. Did you, how did you decide to kind of go it on your own? What sort of made you do that? Yeah, well, several factors, you know, when I started out in PT school, I always knew I, I wanted to do a combination of yoga therapy and physical therapy and kind of combine these two things somehow. I didn't know exactly what that was going to look like, but um, I just wanted to kind of be available for a different patient population than I was seeing in the traditional PT clinic. So there are just so many factors to unpack with the whole um, delivery of physical therapy sure. in the healthcare system. It, it, it's not sustainable for the practitioner in any way. And, you know, not only is it not sustainable from like an energy standpoint, you know, I was working full time yeah. seeing 15 patients or more every single day. And then I had two kids <laughs> and then you're right. You're supposed to go home and like cook dinner and be a mom. And right. it is not possible for me. Right. And it is not possible for so many others you know, I also had undiagnosed chronic health issues that I was already dealing with, but I didn't really understand it. So I would never expect that of myself anymore. I would never try that again, unless I absolutely had to from a financial standpoint, but um, I hope I never do because I don't know if I could handle it physically. But the other piece is under those circumstances where you're seeing a huge volume of patients you're justifying treatments, you're on your computer all day long documenting, and there's a whole back office. They All they do all day long every day is track down reimbursements. And especially in a privately owned outpatient clinic, the reimbursement rates have done nothing but decline ever since I've been a PT. It is not a sustainable model unless you crank up the volume. And then you get practitioners who are burned out, but they also can't provide good care that they know how to provide. And so then we get right. in a situation where everyone's like, well, PT is, you know, crappy because I didn't get good care. And I'm always like, it's not the PT's fault. It's the whole circumstance. They can't provide high quality care and make it home at the end of the day. So anyway, I was feeling all of that. And I said, you know what, I can't do this. I'm going to go this other way. And I really hope that it changes someday because I'd like to have my services be more accessible 
um, it's a problem, but I don't know, you know, I've got to do work that also helps me stay healthy. So that's of where course. I am right now. Yeah. And I mean, the whole system, not just from a PT perspective, but the whole healthcare system is such a reactive one mm -hmm. that I can imagine. And I just know from people I know who've gone to physical therapy and, and quite frankly, my own experiences of going myself as a patient, something happens and then you go. Yeah. And not necessarily that people would need physical therapy, you know, kind of ongoing, but the whole nature of the healthcare delivery system is predicated on wait till something happens and then go, uh, yeah. go into treatment. So you're sort of as a therapist behind the eight ball. Now, of course, if someone has a traumatic injury, that's different. But if there's something that's more, you know, the low back pain, the knee exactly. pain, it's and just like. And that's generally what it was, you know, very, you know, occasional post-op things like that. But the vast majority of patients showing up in outpatient PT are chronic pain patients. And, and they're, it's so complicated by the time they finally get to PT, we're, we're looking at years or decades of a pile up of stuff that is really hard to unravel. And it's hard to unravel when you've got overlapping patients and, you know, all the whole setting just that isn't conducive for that level of patient education that's really required. And, you know, unfortunately, like you mentioned, the healthcare system as a whole doesn't set patients up for success and it doesn't teach them to take charge of their own health and that they're going to be in the driver's seat to turn this big train around when it comes to right. something chronic and they're not ready. Some of them aren't willing and it's just hard to get anywhere. And that gets really discouraging for the practitioner. Yeah. And there's so many other things at play. There could be, you know, unresolved trauma. There could be dietary nutritional issues. I mean, you talk about your own experience being a practitioner and the stress it took on you. And I'm sure you see patients where, you know, their physical manifestation is what it is. And in addition, there's all these other factors that compound it that have nothing to do with functional movement, but everything to do with how they're living and how they're eating and how they're sleeping. I mean, now there's so much information out there about sleep yeah. and impact on longevity. So I can only imagine you see people and, you know, the the code on the slip from the insurance company says you can only talk to them about this one thing and you can only manage this one aspect of their life, but yet it's just a slice, mm -hmm. a whole picture of what needs to be managed. Um, all right. So before we dive into, cause I really want to dive into hypermobility because I actually haven't addressed this. I just passed 200 episodes of the show and I've never covered hypermobility oh, wow. myself as a teacher who teaches anatomy and has a functional movement background, for whatever reason, I just haven't had someone on, I haven't brought it up. So I'm really interested to go into that. Yeah. Before we go there, I'd love to get a sense of kind of what your day looks like. Are you seeing people in your home-based, like just tell us a little bit about how that looks in terms of your teaching. Because when I look online, you've got sort of an online presence and it looks like a membership of some kind, this yoga bite. So I just want to not forget to talk about this before we go into all the other stuff. So just give us a sense of what your days are like and, and what you offer folks. 
Okay. Well, it's all so different than it was two years ago. So pre-pandemic, my life looked really different. I was doing PT three days a week and I didn't, I wasn't even on Instagram. I didn't have an Instagram account. So I'm very new kind of to the online world of yoga teaching and whatnot. And so at the beginning of COVID, I had had this idea to offer um, an anatomy, kind of an ongoing anatomy training for yoga teachers, because I had been training teachers in person for about 10 right. years and um, teaching anatomy workshops, but usually more like fire hydrant style over like one big weekend and it never sticks. And I really wanted to find a way to make anatomy uh, less intimidating, less overwhelming, kind of more fun, more, um, I don't know, people have so much anxiety, yoga teachers do about it, about anatomy. And I understand because sure. they used to be me too. I, I didn't know a thing about anatomy when I became a yoga teacher. So I've been there. And um, anyway, so I had this idea for this membership and my friend and colleague, Mado Hesselink, she and I teamed up on it and you know made it happen really for me out of necessity. So I have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. I was home with them full-time, you know, everything shut down. There were all kinds of things going on in my life that um, necessitated this big change. So um, Anatomy Bites is a monthly membership for yoga teachers. It's bite-sized anatomy lessons every month, and there's some community components to it as well, but it's mostly self um you watch the videos on your own practices and lectures. And then we come together as a group and discuss, and it's been super fun. I absolutely love it. So I spend a lot of my time doing that kind of making content for that. And then I, I treat patients only one day a week at this point in my office, which is across town. Um, I've been spending most of the last year writing a book. So now that that's complete, I am creating some content related to that book. So an online course to kind of go along with that. Yep. And, and I'll be launching that online course for yoga teachers, but also a kind of online studio of sorts that will offer classes, live classes that are available for replay as well, specifically for people with hypermobility. Because one of the things that's come out of the hypermobility stuff is just people want to know, well, what classes should I be taking? And I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> maybe I'll teach them. <laughs> right, okay. All right, so let's start out with a definition of what is hypermobility, because I feel like it's sort of a term that sometimes people attach themselves to, and maybe they don't really fall into the bucket of true hypermobility. Is there a range of hypermobility? What is it? Mm -hmm. I've heard at one point, there's something about an enzyme lacking in the body or something along those lines. So tell us, Tell us a little bit about what that what that covers. Sure. Um, so hypermobility just describes a joint or joints that move more than is considered normal or typical for humans. That's it. So it's not like a pathology in and of itself. It's not, you know, some kind of diagnosis. It just describes joints that move more than typical human joints move. I guess that's the best way to say it. And it's not always a bad thing. There is truly benign hypermobility out there um, because hypermobility, what's the range of motion available to your joints is um, there are a lot of contributing factors to that. So not everyone you see who looks very hypermobile has all kinds of problems going on. Some do and some don't. And there's a wide range, certainly even among those who have 
um, symptomatic hypermobility. So when we start to get into when is hypermobility a problem, it's when it's symptomatic. What are those symptoms? It's all over the place. There are musculoskeletal symptoms, and then there are wide-ranging, just multi-system issues that arise. And that's when we're dealing with hypermobility syndromes. All right. Oh. And so, so that's yeah, a, I mean, a start. I guess I just I want to just when you mentioned range of motion, that was sort of where I was headed into thinking that <clears throat> in, in trying, and maybe there isn't a distinction, and this is my lack of knowledge on the subject, trying to make a distinction between people who have a lot of flexibility and maybe even joint laxity for whatever reason, whether it's a clinical condition or overuse versus people who, if you take the joint in question and you have a chart that says normal range of motion is 130 degrees, but you can passively move them to 150 degrees. I don't know. Is that a legitimate class distinction to make? Um, does it even matter? Is it more just the person's experience of their body? Well, I would say for hypermobility syndromes, that's when we're really getting into, okay, what is this like lived experience in this bendy body, what I call it. But so when we look at range of motion, let's say a normal range of motion for some direction of movement at some joint is 130 degrees. This person boop, goes to 150 degrees. That's a hypermobile joint. It's right. a good or bad thing, but that's how it is. Now, when someone has five or more of those joints, that's right. considered generalized hypermobility. Got it. Okay. But there, again, like I said, there are several things that really contribute to um, someone's mobility, how much range of motion they have. One of those things is going to be muscle tension or muscle flexibility. And that's really under the control of the nervous system. Exactly. Right. You know, how so essentially that asks, well, how well can you use the the range of motion that's available to your joints, right? right. How well do your muscles take you through that? Um, right. How well do they contract? How well do they relax and allow movement to occur? That's flexibility. And I'm using these terms consistent with kind of the convention in the hypermobility world. And I will say it's not consistent everywhere, right? So some people are gonna use the word flexibility a little differently. Yeah. Right? Anyway, so that is what it is, but I'm using it in that way. And then mobility refers more to, okay, what's, what range of motion is granted based on what's happening at the joint, specifically the collagenous connective tissue, laxity or not laxity that allows all that passive range of motion that you talked about. So that's sort of uh, ligaments, joint capsules, fascia, tendons, those thick connective tissue, you know, collagen rich, because okay. when we get into, you know, the hypermobility syndromes, we're essentially dealing with collagen that is different. Okay. My wheels are like really turning as you're talking, because I'm hearing you make a distinction between, let me just make sure this is correct. Mobility being more connective tissue, uh, as the source of or even if we just look at a quote unquote normal person, the mobility is a function of joints and the connective tissue structures that support joints mm -hmm. versus if we define flexibility as more the nervous systems, communication with the muscles, you know, motor neurons, that kind of thing. So we're making those. Okay. Mm -hmm. So 
if we look at someone and that one illustration or that one example you gave, not just one joint that you can measure additional beyond the chart range of motion, but several, would that person have something systemic in their body, like some condition that could be causing that? Or could it just be the way they're built? Or could it be something that, like if I look at a ballerina, mm -hmm. someone who all their life has moved their body in a particular way, could that person be considered hypermobile? And then I look at someone who has some sort of blood disorder or myelin disorder. I, I don't know. Like I'm, I don't know in the off the top of my head <clears throat> what's a clinical condition that would cause hypermobility. I know there's a couple of different things that kids can have. So is that a way to look at it or not, I guess? <laughs> well, maybe. So the thing is when you see someone like a ballerina, um, I would say people who are drawn to ballet and to gymnastics and oftentimes to yoga, they have some natural predisposition for hypermobility because that's why they love these activities because they feel very successful at them. You know, and ballet is probably not going to become your thing if you don't have some level of hypermobility. It's just, I can't, you know, maybe you take it as a kid, but you're not really going to progress in it because it's really about those lines and the, the, body, the, the aesthetics of essentially hypermobility. However, it's hard to say, you know, does that person have a condition? Not necessarily. They might, right. have, they might have a bone structure that lends itself to allowing all of this to happen. You know, they have connective tissue that allows it to happen. Ideally, when they're doing these high level activities, they also have incredible motor control, incredible stability granted by their muscular system that lets them do these things and truly be okay. Yeah, it's, I watched that show America's Got Talent um, and they inevitably have people on who are like, they're not Cirque du Soleil, but they have, they do that sort of thing. Yeah. And it's unbelievable when you see not just, you know, doing a full split, but then turning your torso or I can't even describe, you've probably seen uh, in some capacity things like this. And you look at someone like that and you wonder, are they just doing these movements from such a young age that they, as you say, kind of condition their body to be able to move in that way? Or are they presented with an opportunity and then they sort of train themselves to that capacity? Do some people find that they have a limit? They can't, as you said, they, they let's say they try to be a ballet dancer and they just don't have the physical ability to move their body in that way. Right. So I wonder in those extreme cases, is that just how they're born, do you think? I do think so. I think if they don't have the genetics uh, for that, you're, there's no amount of training that will allow them to achieve that stuff. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. And it may not be revealed. I mean, there, there are plenty of people with hypermobility that's sort of lurking in there, but they've never been active people. Maybe they're more sedentary. Then suddenly they get into something like yoga and they find, whoa, you know, within six months, I'm doing all the challenging, you know, advanced postures and all of that. And then, you know, they're leaving their fellow students in the dust. And then those other 
students with more typical ranges of motion are like, well, why can't I do that? So it's this interesting phenomenon, really. And then they may work for years and years just hammering away. Why can't I achieve this shape? And finally, you know, I'll tell them if I have the opportunity, you can stop. It's not happening. And that's okay. It's not a character judgment. It's just, you know, if if your body hasn't adapted to allow this to happen in a reasonable amount of time, it's not happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. So tell, I mean, you have, it sounds like you have a number of people you see in your practice who have hypermobility in some way, and then you're developing this whole sort of opportunity for people who have hypermobility to practice yoga. So tell me a little bit about like, what are the factors to be considered? Um, when someone is hypermobile and does it matter depending on what joint we're talking about? I mean, I'm sort of thinking like a hypermobile elbow might be a little less of a functional problem than a hypermobile SI joint, just Mm -hmm. in terms of like where it is in the body and Mm -hmm. its importance for stability and support of the whole pelvis and spine. So what comes to mind in that regard? Yeah. So first I'll say, you know, when I'm dealing with patients in physical therapy and I'm developing a program for hypermobile people, it's really the symptomatic hypermobility that we're talking about. And it's the hypermobility syndromes. And so there are a lot of different medical conditions, diagnoses that may feature hypermobility just as a component. For example, like Marfan syndrome, that's a genetic connective tissue disorder. Um, there are others. And the most common of those is the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. And there are 14 subtypes of that. Most of those are rare conditions, but there's one that is not rare. And it's the one that I have. It's called hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. It's the most common type. What's really tricky is that it's not well understood genetically. So like all of the EDS subtypes, it's considered to be a genetic connective tissue disorder that affects collagen, either the assembly of it or the function of it. Maybe it's the fibroblast cell behavior. We're not quite sure, but in the hypermobile type, a molecular marker that may be identified through a blood test has not been identified yet. Okay. 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 For the other types of EDS, there is, there are those markers. Those can be diagnosed via a blood test. The hypermobile type is diagnosed via a clinical diagnostic checklist. If you have all these signs and symptoms that are measurable in the clinic, then you get this diagnosis. Even without a blood test or genetic test or something. That's correct. There is no blood test at this point. Yep. And what you, you know, sometimes there may be a reason to rule out some other genetic connective tissue disorder that presents similarly, whether it's Marfan syndrome or a different type of EDS like vascular EDS or classical EDS or something like that. So you may end up doing some genetic testing to rule out some other conditions that uh, may look similar. And how are these folks presenting that would, I mean, I can sort of hear in your description of things that it's not really a clear defined clinical diagnostic path. 
And so that always sort of makes me think about people who are frustrated about something is happening in their body. They're searching for answers. They're probably seeing lots of different practitioners. So what does this person present looking like? Yeah. So it's exactly as you described, the average time to diagnosis is 10 years. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's average. So it's the same story over and over. And it's, and honestly, the story that I, I lived through it as well, just a few years ago, I saw all the different people and did all different things. And the, you know, again, it, part of it goes back to the way our healthcare system is designed in specialties, you know, and there isn't a specialization that owns connective tissue. Um, there's, you know, there's rheumatology. That's usually yeah. where people get sent to first. And, you know, some rheumatologists are certainly going to be more hip to EDS and know about it. But across the board, it's very, very difficult to find a medical doctor of any specialty, family practice, or any specialization that knows anything at all about EDS. And so it's just a knowledge gap. It's an educational gap. But it leaves patients going from doctor to doctor to doctor with, you know, wide ranging symptoms. They'll be sent to a cardiologist for their cardiac symptoms, a rheumatologist for their joint pain, um, a psychiatrist for their mental health concerns, a um, GI doctor for their digestive disorders, and a family practice doctor who's like, I don't know what else to do with you, basically. So cardiac symptoms and GI mm -hmm. symptoms can mm -hmm. be involved? Yes. So what's the cardiac symptomology look like? Yeah. So um, what's really typical with hypermobile EDS is um, what's called POTS. It's postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And so it involves really high heart rate when you stand up or, you know, change and come to upright and often includes a lot of heart palpitations. And so, and windedness and dizziness and I had that pretty significantly. That was one of my primary things I had a few years ago that really led me to seek some medical attention and figure this out. Yeah. And um, I had POTS, but of course the cardiologist I saw at the time didn't even mention that could be a possibility and really blew me off as did all the other um, specialists I saw and um, really dismissed all my concerns. And I was having palpitations all day, every day, constantly. I couldn't go to yoga class. I would be so winded, I'd be down. I couldn't walk up my stairs. It was really extreme. And so it was scary, right? So I got, of course, my family doctor did what she was supposed to do and sent me to the cardiologist. Right, <laughs> and right. He, he literally said, well, there's almost no chance there's anything wrong with you. That's what he said. And so anyway, um, later down the road, I learned about POTS and this is a form of dysautonomia. So it's really a dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. That's having a hard time regulating blood pressure, heart rate, and all the things. It's also a function of collagen. That's more lax. That's more saggy because when you stand up, your blood kind of pools in these saggy vessels because your blood vessels okay. are collagen too. Right. And so when you've got this, yeah, blood pulling. Now you've got a heart that has to crank it up to get blood flow all the way up to your brain. Okay. So that makes sense. Cause I was trying, yeah. as you were describing it, I'm trying to link it to cardiac muscle or like orthostatic hypertension, that sort of yep. syndrome. But yeah, I could see now that you're describing it as kind of a, a laxity in the arteries and the veins to create good circulation. Yep. 
it's, uh, more, it, it's certainly the laxity. So there's like a, a tissue component, yeah. the tissue laxity, but there's also an autonomic nervous system component. So the nervous system of people with hypermobile EDS and hypermobility spectrum disorder, which is kind of a sister label for people with symptomatic hypermobility who don't fit all those diagnostic criteria, but they're essentially clinically the same condition anyway, and they both have POTS. But the nervous systems have been shown to be quite different, even some brain anatomy differences in bendy people that predisposes them to have a much higher sympathetic arousal kind of at baseline and, um, you know, some just challenges with autonomic regulation. Yeah. And I would imagine in someone like that, the normal stressors of life must be heightened in terms of how they experience them. Yes. I sort of liken it to like hot flashes in a way, kind of like if you get stressed, you get more hot flashes or that kind of syndrome in, in menopausal women. So <clears throat> if that's the case, or in, in your case, how did you, how did you, do you feel like now you sort of have a better handle on things and what did you do and what do you do with your patients that you see? Yeah, I do feel like I've learned a ton and it's what led me to, you know, do so much research for my book on the topic. But luckily I found some practitioners in the area that are friends and colleagues <clears throat> that also have similar conditions. And there's one who's an acupuncturist and knows all about functional kind of nutrition and things like that. And she is a whiz and helped me so much. And through my research and her help, um, learned about POTS, learned about the things that can help, which is I was very deconditioned when I had these symptoms because I was postpartum. And, you know, I was a little older to, when I had my children and who knows, maybe that was a factor as well, but it was extremely difficult for me to recover from my childbirth, both of them. And it turns out that's actually pretty classic of someone with EDS. It's pregnancy hits them really hard and it's really hard to recover. And I was in that zone, deconditioned, feeling terrible in all the ways. And so it's really slow progression with fitness, getting back kind of in some cardiovascular shape um, very slowly has been huge. Mm -hmm. And also highly salting my food and like high, heavy use of electrolytes. I have so much electrolyte in my system at all times. Cardiac impact you're looking yes. for. Yeah. Yes. And that the combination of all those things has helped tremendously. It's more and more rare that I have what I call a potsy day where I'm dizzy and palpitations. It's very rare now. Wow. So, yeah. It's amazing. Now is your intake of salt affecting your blood pressure at all? Well, luckily I've always had low blood pressure, so I've got yeah. some wiggle room on that. Yeah. Yeah. And what about resistance training? Like the muscular tone? Yeah, it's huge. It's universally important for uh, wow. bendy people. And see, this is a perfect example of what we were just talking about, how you need, how, how patients need like a holistic look at their life. They don't Cause like you were going to the people and each yeah. person in their silo was like, I mean, I can't believe the cardiologist. Would say oh, it, was it was shocking. It really was shocking. You know, as a medical 
professional myself, I I was shocked by what I experienced, not just with him, but several others as well. I mean, if anything, I would have expected him to say, you're having panic attacks. I would have expected that as a minimum. Exactly. And maybe a Valium prescription. Not that that would be a good recommendation, but um, I mean, you're there with cardiac symptoms in the cardiologist's office. And at a minimum, I would think, and I'm sure many women experience that feedback from a cardiologist that there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. You're probably just having a panic attack. Right. Just having that. You can even get that. Wow. Exactly. Um, Okay. So, so when you see your, I mean, I'm trying to make a distinction, I guess, between your PT patients. I mean, maybe we can focus a little more on the yoga practitioner side of things, just for purposes of the the audience that's listening to the show. How, how do you address, I mean, certainly as yoga practitioners, our, our scope of practice doesn't really permit us to go into all these other areas that you're going into. Mm -hmm. So as a yoga teacher, um, uh, my guess is we're kind of taking the word of our students when they say that they have hypermobility. We're not doing any muscle testing, again, scope of practice. So how do we work with folks that have this syndrome, whether it's syndrome or just specific to a particular part of the body? Yeah, so you know, if someone says, if self-diagnoses they have hypermobility, I'm gonna assume there's some issue they're having with it. Otherwise they probably wouldn't bring it up. So I wanna ask more about that. <clears throat> is it symptomatic? What kinds of challenges are you having related to that? And if there really aren't any, then there's no cause for alarm. So I think there's a, a fine kind of little line to walk, especially as yoga teachers, where we really don't need to alarm our students about their hypermobility. Because even if they do have a hypermobility syndrome, let's say they have symptomatic hypermobility, they've got joint pain, they've got muscle pain, they've got chronic fatigue, they've got um, IBS kind of stuff, they've got anxiety, panic attacks, um, they've got POTS, they're dizzy, their heart's racing, all these different things. Those are, those are, I just named the kind of the most common cluster of things. (laughs) Wow. And it turns out so many people are dealing with all of that kind of all the time, and they just never connected the dots They never realize that all of their long list of food sensitivities and their restrictive diet and, you know, um, maybe they've got a diagnosis of IBS, but maybe they just know they have, they can't eat gluten or dairy or you name it. Right. But they didn't realize that plus their panic disorder or anxiety, plus their bendiness and maybe, you know, their subluxating shoulder or whatever, and um, their dizziness and all those different things. They just never connected the dots. Wow. That is just so, okay. So, okay, go ahead with what you're saying. So so back to your question, like, what do you do when someone says I have hypermobility? Um, There's no reason for alarm. They're not, they're probably not going to wreck themselves in yoga class. So I really think that the caution around, you know, bendy people practicing yoga is a little bit overdone. 
<laughs> okay. But they are at more risk for injury. For sure they are. There are more risk for joint dislocations and subluxations, which is a partial dislocation. They're at more risk for sprains and strains and kind of leaving class feeling like, oh, my wonky SI joint. Okay. They're definitely going to be that person who's got the wonky SI joint after class. But those are, you know, quote, injuries or challenges that are if we start to understand hypermobility, we can adjust our practice to alleviate those fairly easily. And I would say it's the more extreme end of things that are going to be dislocating joints all the time in yoga. That that does happen, but it's going to be kind of more the outlier, mm -hmm. I would say. So I think it's good to have some mindfulness. We can educate our students about you know things to support their bendiness, not just how do we avoid these injuries, but how do we like shift our practice so we're really supporting proprioception and motor control, joint stability, that type of thing, which can really help them in life. So that's really the focus. And then we could ask some questions too, like, hmm, you know, some people have hypermobility and they've got these similar symptoms and they also turns out they struggle with anxiety and some digestive issues. And there are all these things that could be connected to it. And so it might shed some light on your situation and your lived experience. If you were to learn about hypermobility syndromes. Right. Yeah. I bet. Well, I mean, I think in someone who, like you described earlier is coming to yoga class and doing a lot of postures that ask for a lot of range of motion and they're doing them easily, you know, and they're sort of quote unquote, the envy of the other students. Oh, you can do blah, blah, blah. If they don't have any of these other symptoms, they might just, their lived experience might just be, Hey, it's kind of easy for me to go into a split, or it's kind of easy for me to do whatever pose yeah. versus someone else who with a little probing might reveal that they have all these other issues. Exactly. Um, so for when you talk about um, the classes you're going to offer, when you talk about some of the other ways we can approach a practice as a teacher mm -hmm. to support people who are not just the, oh, isn't this so great? I can do all this super bendy stuff. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Like, I don't know. Am I thinking like a lot of standing balances. So I increase lateral hip stability. I don't know, like just what does it look like? Well, definitely shorter holds. I don't know. What, what, is, yeah. what are some of the variables? Yeah. So it kind of depends on your style. So, you know, some people have more of a static style where they're holding poses. Um, I have a more dynamic style. I certainly come out of sort of a vinyasa background, but in the last decade or so, I've been really more interested in the Vini yoga lineage, which is dynamic movement, but just uh, re repetitive movements and some stay as well, some static holds as well, but, but focus on slow. That's the key, especially if there's a dynamic form of practice, a moving practice. We want to just turn the speed way down because moving slowly lets us have the time to pay attention and learn about what it feels like to move through our range of motion. Because one of the interesting things about bendy people is they don't always get the clues, the input from their body to their brain about what's happening in the body. Yeah, it's like really sensory think. neurons might not be as 
aware, awake. Totally. Because they don't get stimulated as easily because of their floppy fascia. <laughs> they they don't feel anything until they're way out at end range yes. and tension, right? Because they have to stimulate those receptors with mechanical information. So on the way to end range, they may not feel a thing, right. but Right. But they may, if they slow down and pay attention, start to pick up on some more subtle information. Yeah, it's all that interoception, I would think. Exactly. Really, like those types of classes where you're just moving like inch by inch and the teachers yeah. give you a lot of interoceptive inquiry questions. You know, yeah. it's different for everybody, but yet you're sort of holding them, holding the reins back a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then the language just has to reflect that we have a different goal in the asana practice than yeah. going somewhere. We're not trying to get anywhere. Yeah. We're just trying to experience this body and let's land in this body and learn to feel what's happening, learn to sense a little bit more accurately so we can take care of it better. And that does often mean backing away from the end range, at least for the short term, because we want to control movement and that's what's hard. We want yeah. to control control movement, motor control starts in middle ranges, and then it can expand out here as we, you know, practice it, but we usually have to rein it in a bit to start mm -hmm. developing that. Yeah. I remember, uh, years ago, I had this young woman and she came to my class for the first time. She couldn't have been more than 110, 105, 110 pounds, very tiny. And she went up into Urva Dhanurasana and she could not get out because she hyperextended her elbows. Oh gosh. And I had to go over to her and kind of place my hands on her back and sort of lift her up off the floor so she could bend her elbows. And after class, she described herself as having um, double jointed elbows, hypermobile elbows. I don't mm -hmm. think she used that term. And so over the next several weeks, uh, I worked with her so that she would be more aware, as you said, in going into wheel and wouldn't actually fully extend her elbows. So mm. she kept a little bit of flexion there. Yeah. And um, so I just, it just reminded me when you were describing that of that particular person. Yeah. So, um, so, all right. So we've talked about the sequencing. We've talked about kind of a definition. So what other considerations, I mean, cause I guess the other thing I'm thinking of is for so many yoga teachers, they won't know who is in their class that has something like this happening. I mean, is there something visual? I can't imagine there's really anything visual other than maybe the student who you're noticing as you're teaching, wow, that person's pretty flexible. Right. That may or may not be a hypermobile person and it may or may not even be a problem to that person. Yeah. So unless you're sort of labeling your class as being supportive to folks that are, mm -hmm. are, have this in their body, this part of their being, are there any general things that we should all be taking into consideration, which I guess just touches on good joint and mobility health? <laughs> Yeah, it does. You know, I think helping students develop proprioception, really knowing where their body is in space and the joint positions is helpful for everyone. And um, building motor control and you know, mindful movement and introceptive accuracy, all those things are just, they're so helpful for all of us. 
and they're going to be really helpful for your bendy students. But you might say things like, you know, if you have hypermobility or you know you have problems with your hypermobility, pay attention especially to your elbows in this posture, something like that. Because what I've experienced a lot is, oh, your elbows, your knees are hyperextending like it's it's a character flaw or something, you know, and, and it's it's a really big deal. And it really isn't a big deal, but it might be an indication that this is a bendy body, maybe, and that they may have a whole slew of stuff they're not talking about because they don't even know it's connected and they may not bring it up to their yoga teacher anyway. But if we say the words like if you have a hypermobility syndrome or, you know, you have challenges here, right? And that might plant a seed for them that um, huh, maybe I should investigate that. How interesting. It's really more about an inquiry you know, and we're not going to fix those uh, double jointed elbows, you know, that people will call it or knees by putting a micro bend in them. That's not going to like save the day. It might oh. be more comfortable, but we can certainly treat, uh, teach people how to hug their muscles, you know, into the bones and stabilize that joint with their muscles. That's very useful. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the other thing that I will say about, you know, how can we use yoga it's universally important that a hypermobile person, especially with symptomatic hypermobility, get under some resistance and really focus on stability training and all that strength training. But that doesn't have to happen in asana practice. So it really depends on what is your goal with asana. If your goal with asana is a physical workout, well, then you've got some ripe opportunities to build strength and stability, joint stability, like that could be happening in your asana class. Right. Or your asana practice could really be more about rhythmic movement and interoception and nervous system regulation. And you go get under the resistance at the gym. Mm -hmm. You know, that's my, that's how I prefer to practice. I don't have yoga. Isn't like my fitness program at all. And when it was long, long time ago, it only caused me trouble. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just had a thought as you were talking to, and especially for folks listening, teachers who might see someone privately, which is obviously a very different scenario than the group class. Mm -hmm. So do you have any thoughts on if someone is seeing or gets approached by a student mm -hmm. and they are, you know, a motivated person, they know they have this, they have all these other symptoms. What are some considerations? Because you have a little more you know, you can do so much more because there's just that one person to really customize the practice. Yeah, you can certainly show them to some resources that others may not have had any idea about, you know, their family doctor, et cetera. And you can certainly encourage them to really advocate for themselves at their doctor and present this cluster of symptoms as though maybe it is related. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. I don't know. I'm your yoga teacher, but I, I know about some resources online. I've got this great book or whatever, and I'm going to share it with you to help you investigate your experience. That's a perfect thing for the yoga teacher, you know, to do, to, to play that role and encourage people to advocate for themselves. And if their doctor isn't receptive and is dismissive, encourage them to get a different doctor and you keep getting different doctors until you find one that's willing to learn with you. That's what you're looking for. You're not looking for a doctor who already knows about this because they don't. Yeah. You're just highly unlikely to find one unless they're specialized in it, mm -hmm. which I only know a few in the whole country. So, um, but you want to find one that's willing to learn along with you and that believes you and, you know, 
that type of thing. So, but from a yoga standpoint, I would point people to, again, proprioception, motor control, just body awareness training and nervous system stuff. How do I manage this nervous system that we can, you know, guarantee for most of us that we're dealing with a lot of sympathetic arousal, a highly reactive threat detection system that makes me feel like I'm kind of having a panic attack all the yeah, time. I'm on fire almost all the time. On fire all the time. So I want to learn about that. My practice can really help me build some skills to regulate that a little bit and to understand it a little bit better. That would be a really good use of the yoga. So if I'm, so let me just boil that down into even more, like, what does it look like? So I could teach sort of a vinyasa flow, but I would want to teach it slower. Mm -hmm. I would want to definitely cue to the breath to get the parasympathetic triggered. Mm-hmm. Um, I would want to use cueing. That was a lot of just open-ended. Do you notice this? How does this feel? How does this feel in your body? Are there some shifts you can make versus like stack your knee over your heel? This is the way to do it. Don't put your foot there. All this kind of restrictive stuff. Yep. Um, I would want to use maybe anatomical cues that focus on things like you were saying before, like, can you engage the muscle of your back thigh to support your leg or to support your knee? Can you draw the belly button in or hug the sides of the waist and things that refer to muscular action to create structural support? Mm -hmm. Um, And would I avoid offering certain, I mean, I hate to sort of have a list of bad poses and a list of good poses, just, but would I, you know, would I maybe not necessarily do some sort of split scenario? Would I not necessarily do a double bind? I mean, would I maybe stay sort of in the middle lane in terms of what I'm asking of the joints to do? I would, I would. Um, It's not that the splits are going to wreck this person, but they aren't functionally useful for for anybody, but they're certainly not functionally useful for this person. So we we always have to ask like, why, why do we want to do this? And why is this included in my yoga practice, which is not contortionist training. It's about something totally different. So we, you know, I would, you know, I would urge people to really have that inquiry, but I would be extra cautious with someone if they had a history of shoulder dislocation. So, you know, because they're very likely to dislocate again. And I'd learn about the position that puts the shoulder in most risk of dislocating, which is like the wild thing is like a, an example I always bring up. That's exactly the position of shoulder dislocation. So I might be cautious with postures that put the shoulder in that uh, position. And then if someone has some neck issues associated like craniocervical instability is really common among hypermobile people. Um, They may or may not know about that, of course, but I urge caution with headstand and shoulder stand. Oh yeah. That makes sense. Got it. Or even like a lot of extension and back bends. Exactly. Yep. Okay, great. Um, One more thing before we talk about your book. Um, What is out there in terms of ingesting collagen? I mean, everybody is ingesting collagen. I haven't really gotten a good sense that there's any good clinical studies to Mm -hmm. indicate it actually positively impacts collagen growth in the body. I mean, I've asked 
my physicians. I've done some studying online because I see Jennifer Aniston's is promoting it. And I'm like, oh, her hair looks great. She looks great. We're about right. the same age. And yet there's nothing I can find that seems to indicate that there's a direct link between ingesting collagen. But as you know, whether it's powder form or bone broth, there's all sorts of nutritional approaches to. So since we're talking about mobility and you're mentioning collagen and we're talking about connective tissue structure and connective tissue, part of it, fibroblast, collagen fibers, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on ingesting collagen? Yeah, I wish I had a better answer. I don't know. I've like okay. yourself, I haven't seen any studies really that Okay, that was my first question. And yeah. the thing is, I certainly there I haven't seen studies on people who have collagen deficiencies or collagen collagenopathies is the biggest term we could use. Different collagen. You know, if my body doesn't make really strong collagen, I don't know that it will make good collagen regardless of how much collagen supplementation I do. I take it sometimes and I figure it can't hurt, but I have no idea if it helps. One thing I will say is that there is no collagen without vitamin C. So I am kind of, you know, particular about, I do the vitamin C just yeah. to give my body as much help as it can get in that regard. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's expensive. It's hard to suggest that to people without really knowing that there's a benefit. Yeah, I was just more curious about it. I mean, yeah. um, I am too. I really am. Yeah. I'm also sort of mired in the whole, you know, dietary cholesterol. Does it have an effect on HDL and LDL? And there's a lot of studies that talk about LDL sometimes is just high in the body because people just, their liver just creates it. And it's yeah. not so similar to what you're saying. If you ingest collagen, the molecular process to actually create connective tissue, I would think the whole pathway would be very different than if your genesis of the collagen is from the body's mechanics yeah. of how that's developed from a cellular level. Yeah, exactly. I'd say what might be more useful or at least equally useful would be to look at systemic inflammation and, and perhaps even histamine issues, because those are very common among Bindi people. A lot of people have what's called mast cell activation syndrome, and there are mast cells, which is an immune cell. They degranulate and release histamines and other inflammatory stuff. And they just are degranulating all the time, even when they shouldn't be. And it really causes this big systemic inflammation process mm -hmm. that, um, is a really debilitating for a lot of people. So that may be at play and worth investigating nutritionally mm -hmm. um, more than the collagen, who knows? But there is actually some thought out there that the hypermobile EDS whole presentation may have a strong autoimmune component and it may be linked to this mast cell thing that goes on for people. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I actually just got my C-reactive protein tested mm -hmm in my blood because I'm having a little bit of an LDL issue. And so I asked for that and that's an inflammatory marker. Yep. And actually my score was great. So I'm super psyched. I don't know if C-reactive protein is a systemic inflammation marker or just more related to cardiac function, but um, I totally hear what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And there's just so much out there now, even about the microbiome and mm -hmm. its effect on systemic inflammation. So I would think like, oh my God, I mean, it's just, there's so much when you look at just that and you connect it to what you eat that could really, 
you could really um, revamp your whole approach to food um, in, a, in a way designed to decrease inflammation and not in the Tom Brady, I don't want to eat nightshades, but like, <laughs> you know, like yeah. not that that's, maybe that is a legit thing, right. but just everything. When you look at labels and there's all these oils and all this kind of stuff, you can really, um, I would think impact your potential for adding to inflammation by simply eating better, closer to source yeah. Food. And I'm not saying vegan or not, just right. the source. Yeah, I agree. And there's so many potential huge rabbit holes you could get lost in when you investigate all that and you could spend all your money on all the things which may or may not have any impact on you. So I always would caution people from getting too over the top about that stuff. Go for the really low hanging fruit. What do we know is inflammatory for, every, you know, for humans? Sugar, yes. for example. I mean, let's just go for the really stuff. food and sugar. Yeah. Right. And, you know, can we think about adding in good things more than we think about taking out the bad things? And that sometimes can be more kind of fun for people. Like, can you just eat more vegetables? Yeah. <laughs> well, you see the really low hanging fruit. There it is. <laughs> eat more fruit, eat more vegetables. Yeah. And, you know, I know the fruit haters will say, well, that's sugar, but it's, I know, I know. Versus, you know, processed sugar. And uh, so, yeah, no, I totally hear you. Um, okay. So as we wrap up here, tell us about your book. What's the name of your book? Is it available? What's it about? Who's it for? Let's talk about this book. Okay. The book is called yoga for bendy people. It is all about yoga and hypermobility, okay. and it is specifically for yoga teachers, all yoga teachers who may have some bendy people in their class, you know, and want to kind of adjust their teaching to, to be supportive for this population. And it's also for bendy people who either practice yoga or may want to practice yoga and want some guidance on what are the things I should keep in mind look for, et cetera. How should I hear verbal cues, right? So there's there are chapters on verbal cues, teaching language, assists, all these different components of teaching um, that are really applicable to both of those populations. It's available wherever you buy books. It's on Amazon, it's on Barnes and Noble, your friendly neighborhood independent bookstore can order it. And um, there is an ebook and a paperback and I am gonna be producing an audiobook soon. Awesome. 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 And I'm actually thinking, um, like I'll spring this on you in the moment, but I'd love to do a webinar, you and me, where you can take us through the book's contents. I mean, not all of it, but I'd love to like get our respective virtual communities together, offer that to them. Um, I know when I do workshops online, I do a lot of it, like without a PowerPoint, I'm just like on the yoga mat and walking people through stuff. I would think your book would give us a lot of things where we could, you know, either you're on the mat or I'm on the mat demoing and you're talking me through something. I would love to do that because I think it would be, be interesting and probably um, would interest a lot of folks. So we, yeah. especially since the book's out, we can talk offline about scheduling something like that. I would love to do that with you. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds great. Um, okay. So that's all the places they can get the book and tell people how now that you're on Instagram and you're kind of in that world, uh, I found you, but tell, tell people how they can find you on Instagram. Yeah. So on Instagram, I'm Libby Hinesley PT. 
And um, my website is LibbyHinesley.com. So that's pretty easy. And that'll have links to all of my email lists. I have a couple lists, one that's hypermobility specific and one that is anatomy for yoga teachers specific. So awesome. 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 Well, it was great to connect with you. No pun intended. <laughs> Likewise. Uh, geeky joke. Geeky yeah, anatomy yeah. joke. Sorry, I can't <laughs> help it. Um, but really, it truly was. And, and I have so many like wheels turning in my head now about this scenario. And you've really sparked a lot of interest on my part. And um, I'm just really grateful uh, again to Trina for connecting us and grateful to you for your time. And I'm looking forward to doing something in the future, near future with you, because I really am intrigued by this. And I think a lot of folks are too. And I, I really want to sort of demystify it and kind of take away some of the maybe not so great labeling that's yeah. put on and really get down like we did here today to brass tacks on what what's involved. Yeah. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So this is today we're recording this on, I want to say Monday, but it's not Monday. Yesterday was Monday. We're recording this on the sixth. This will go live Monday. I always post on Mondays and I'm right. up to speed. So like really, even though we're recording this on the sixth, it'll go up right this coming Monday. So it'll okay. be really recent and fresh. Okay, great. All right. So I'll send you the links and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Sounds good. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this latest episode. And thank you so much for being part of my community and for spending some time with me here on the show. I wanted to wrap up this episode with just a quick note. I have a brand new recorded workshop page. And I'm really excited to offer you an opportunity to watch recorded workshops whenever you want. I have the first installment of a workshop on the page on the website, and it is a short workshop all about how to give effective cues. And so all you need to do to watch this free workshop is go to my website, barebonesyoga.com, and you'll see the listing in the dropdown for recorded workshops. When you click that page, you'll see on that page the link to sign up to watch that recorded workshop. I'll be adding more workshops in the future to this page, and it's a way that you can access educational and growth information for teachers without having to make a workshop at a particular time. I love to get together with teachers live, both in person and of course online, which is where I'm doing most of my interaction with teachers right now. However, I appreciate that sometimes people can't make a workshop or the time doesn't work for them or they're in a different time zone. So I want you to know that this page can be a resource for you so that as you're out there and you have questions about different things, or you have maybe a half an hour, 45 minutes that you want to devote to your continuing education as a teacher, you can just go to my website, pull up this recorded workshops page, and there will be resources there for you to take a look at. And all of the workshops that I share are all designed at number one, giving you information, and number two, giving you the skills that come from getting that information. It doesn't do you any good if I'm just giving you information on anatomy. If I don't show you how you can use it in your teaching to grow as a teacher, to grow your impact, then it's really not very useful. So all my workshops will have that dual focus, 
sharing a little bit, and then showing you how to apply it. So I hope you'll check that out. If you have any questions or feedback, definitely let me know. Just send me an email, karen at barebonesyoga.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and I look forward to hearing from you. Namaste.